Well, good morning. Welcome to the uh, Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are uh, with us. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 3 John, as Dave just read, we will be finishing. And so uh, we've actually been in uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which are together called the Johannine Epistles, uh, for the past year. In fact, we started almost exactly one year ago. We started on July 14th of, uh, of last year, had no idea what this uh, this past year would have in store for us. I think it's been pretty surprising on a number of levels. But we've been in this for the past uh, year, and we will conclude it uh, today. And that, so as we begin this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about the staff here at, uh, at Parkway. I love the guys on staff. I hope you love the guys on staff. There are five of us, and so the other four guys and I get along uh, really well. It helps that we uh, share a number of the, uh, the same passions and a number of uh, similar convictions. So we don't uh, only get along well uh, together as coworkers, but also just as friends. We have these shared uh, passions and convictions, but at the same time, we have very different preferences in a few areas. And I notice, in particular, these preferences when it comes to recommendations. There are certain things that each staff member can recommend that I pay attention to, and other things that they might recommend that I don't pay attention to. And so, for example, anytime Zach recommends a book, I'm interested in that. Although he did recommend a book on pirates one time that wasn't quite as swashbuckling as I thought uh, it would be. But 99.9% of the time, if Zach recommends a book, I enjoy it. That's not the case when it comes to his recommendations of TV shows. There's like a 50-50 chance that I'll hate it. Not only not like it, I'll actually hate it. Or, uh, or Tim. Uh, Tim, when it comes to restaurants, I tend to appreciate uh, his recommendations in that area. I give him a hard time for being a bit of a food snob and for uh, making fun of all the places I tend to go, but generally, I tend to agree with him uh, in regards to uh, restaurants. But when it comes to YouTube videos, I don't agree with him. Uh, and so uh, he'll send me a video and he'll say, this is hilarious. And I will watch it and I'll think, that is not hilarious at all. I think Tim is extremely funny. If you know Tim, you know that he is very funny himself. He just so happens to not send videos that are all that funny. Or Carl, uh, Carl, whenever he is giving me some sort of recommendation regarding yard work, I tend to pay attention. Carl has a bit of a green thumb. It's a weird medical problem, but uh, he has, a, he has a, wet, a, a, a green thumb. He loves uh, yard work. He studies this, literally. I call it yardening. And, uh, and he literally is studying up on the best weed killers and fertilizers and all that. And since my front yard looks like a Ken Burns uh, Vietnam documentary, I tend to pay attention whenever he has a particular product that he recommends. But... If Carl recommends an orchestral arrangement, I don't care about that at all. Well, what, about, uh, what about Jared? Well, Jared's like 21, so if he recommends something, it's just cute, right? It's like when your kids recommend wear these pajamas to work, and you're like, oh, that's so cute. Uh, although the other day, uh, Jared did, I thought, recommend a particular movie to me. And, uh, and he said how great this movie was, and it was really surprising because I thought that movie sounds like it's not that great, but he recommended it, and, uh, and so my wife Casey was uh, out with some friends, and, uh, and so it was like my first night just home alone the, um, since the 
pandemic kind of began. And so I had an opportunity just to watch whatever I wanted for the first time in like three, four, five months, whatever it was. And, uh, and so I decided, you know what? Jared recommended this movie. I'm going to check it out. And so I watched it and it was horrible. It was like absolutely horrible. Nothing inappropriate, nothing like that. Uh, it was just bad acting. The plot was terrible. And so I literally, right after I watched it, I texted Jared and I said, I can't believe you recommended this movie to me. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen that movie. I didn't recommend that movie. But here's the problem. Someone at this church, I know for a fact, recommended that movie. And whoever you are, you owe me five ninety nine. dollars like, Seriously. So if you've ever recommended a movie, I'm not going to tell you the name of this one. Just give me $5 if you've ever recommended a movie. Or I'll have Carl come and kill your lawn. Uh, I tell you all that because this theme of recommendations comes up in our text today. In fact, this text today is about a recommendation. The letter of 3 John is, in a sense, kind of a referral letter, a letter of recommendation. It's written by a guy, uh, presumably the Apostle John, and it's written to another guy named Gaius, and it's regarding a guy named Demetrius, and we're going to explore that today. And I don't know if the Apostle John had very developed and cultivated uh, culinary tastes or musical tastes, or if he knew anything at all about yard maintenance, but when an apostle speaks Bible, we should listen. And so that's what we're going to do today. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in together. I'd ask you first just to pray uh, for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, an undivided and undistracted mind and, uh, and heart. Maybe you need to even repent of something right now as you come in and you're frustrated or you're angry or whatever it might be. And then will you pray something similar for those uh, around you, whether they're friends or family or acquaintances or complete strangers, that the Lord would give us a corporate desire to apply the word to our lives and And then lastly, will you pray for me, for boldness and, and faithfulness? So Father, we confess that you are good, and in a strange little text to close uh, this book, uh, we confess that even in these words, there is something that is profitable, because all Scripture is uh, breathed out, it's inspired, and thus it's profitable and it's authoritative. And it's good for us, and so I pray that we would uh, exult in that and exalt your goodness this morning. We pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts, so we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in uh, 3 John 11. I'll read that. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And we'll start with this first phrase here. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate evil. Good. And so as we begin, let's kind of back up because one of the things we have to do anytime we're reading scripture is consider the background. There's no text that's given to us that kind of defies the laws of physics and just kind of floats midair, unattached from anything else. There's always what we call context. 
And that context is two-dimensional. There is both a historical context, that is how this passage relates to the cultural circumstances and the historical background in which the author is writing. So that's the first dimension, is this historical context. And then there's also a literary context, that is how this passage relates to other passages, uh, relates to what the author has already been talking about within this chapter or within this book or within this series of books or whatever it might be. So let's consider the context of this particular passage. So uh, taking into uh, to account kind of the, the overarching background of the book, uh, it is part of this series. First, second, and third John are all connected. They're all written probably by the same author. That's the apostle John. And so this author is writing in this particular historical context in which there are these false teachers This false teaching has arisen in the church, not just any false teaching. We talked last week about the different levels of false teaching, or maybe that's a couple of weeks ago, where you have the major distortions of the gospel, and then you have meaningful, and then you have minor. So it's not just these minor distortions, but major heresy. Denials of the person and work of Christ. So John writes 1 John uh, in particular to give these three tests. How do I know whether or not the teaching that I'm hearing is true? How do I know if the teacher that's teaching these things is a true teacher or if he is a false prophet, an antichrist in uh, the language of 1 John? He gives these three tests. The first one is a theological test. Do you believe the right things about God? and the gospel. The second one is a moral test. That is, do you pursue holiness? Do you have a growing desire to repent of your sin? And the third is a social test. And that is, do you love others? And is that love expressed in your sacrificing yourself to serve them? And these three tests are not three different independent tests. In fact, they're all interrelated. Typically, when someone fails one of the tests, they won't just fail that one test, they will fail multiple tests. Uh, Indeed, oftentimes they'll fail all three to some extent. So there's this high correlation that exists between false teaching and immorality and a failure to love others. For example, take a prosperity gospel preacher, that's a, a distortion of theology, that's a theological error. And then that prosperity gospel uh, pastor, uh, quote unquote pastor, encourages these poor widows to send in their life savings. That is a social error. It's a failure to love and serve others. It actually abuses and uses this person. And then that quote unquote pastor then later gets caught in uh, some sort of adulterous affair, which is a moral error. We see all three. And so you oftentimes see all three. And so these false teachers are spreading false teaching, and as a result of that, they are encouraging lovelessness and immorality. And that's the historical context of this passage. As it relates to the literary context, last week we were introduced to a guy named Diotrephes. Diotrephes, who seems to fail at least the theological and also the social test. He fails the theological test, if you remember, because he rejects the apostolic authority. He does not listen to John. He does not listen to the apostles and their preaching. And then he fails the social test because he fails to practice uh, love and hospitality toward other brothers. So when John writes in our text today, do not imitate evil, he probably has in mind to some extent this context that he's just been writing about. So he probably has in mind to some extent the particular evil, the particular types of errors, 
that are demonstrated by Diotrephes. Don't be like Diotrephes. Don't be like that Diotrephes guy. That's what John is basically saying. Instead, you are to imitate good. Well, what good? Well, good as expressed in theological fidelity and love for others and in morality. In other words, love, uh, uh, good is expressed in truth and holiness and love, the three tests that we have been talking about. And so he says we are to imitate good. The word imitate in Greek is where we get the word mimic. I don't know uh, if you've ever seen someone who's really good at uh, impressions. We've talked before about how Tim is pretty good at impressions, but if you've ever seen someone who is really, really good at impressions, and one of the things that makes them so good is how uh, they notice these little details. And so whether it's uh, like Dana Carvey from old SNL days or Frank Caliendo or, or somebody else like that, they, they tend to study their subjects so much that they pick up on these little details that most of us don't notice until the person does it. And, say, and then we say, yes, that's absolutely right. And so whenever uh, the author here is saying that we are to imitate what is good, there is a sense in which we are to study it. If you're gonna imitate something, you have to study that thing. So if we're going to imitate what is good, we need to study what is good. So how do we do that? How do we study what is good? Well, there are at least two different ways in which we can do so. The first one should be obvious to anyone who's come to Parkway for a while. That is this, this, uh, this primacy that we place on the sufficiency of Scripture. So we need to study Scripture. We need to be immersed in Scripture in order to discern good from evil, right from wrong. This is the primary way that we are to study good. If you are to imitate what is good, you have to study what is good. And the first and foremost way that you study what is good is by studying Scripture. Why? Because you don't know what good is apart from Scripture. Why not? Because there's a way that seems right. There's a way that seems good to man. How does Proverbs end? But it leads to death. That's the result. And so you don't know what to think about abortion. You don't know what to think about justice and injustice or poverty or gender or divorce and remarriage and on and on we can go apart from the Bible. In each of these areas, our culture has certain feelings. I feel like this is what's best when it comes to justice. I feel like this is what's best when it comes to divorce and remarriage. I feel like this is what's best when it comes to poverty and so forth. And yet in almost all of these cases, the direction that culture feels like is good is not actually good. And unfortunately, that's not just the case in the larger culture. We're seeing that more and more even within evangelical culture as we are kind of denying, abandoning uh, not only the, efficiency, uh, the authority, but the sufficiency of Scripture. But that's the first way that we are to study what is good is by studying Scripture. But there is another way as well. It isn't a substitute for studying Scripture. It's not like you can just do the second thing and you don't have to do the first thing. You have to study Scripture. But there is another way that you can imitate what is good and study what is good, and that that is by studying others. In fact, Scripture commands us to imitate others. Same uh, Greek word there in some sense. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, that's the apostles, because we were not idle when we were with you. Or Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spurk, spoke, spurk, I don't know what that is, spoke the, uh, to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, if you know someone who loves prayer, 
If you know someone who just immerses their life in prayer, imitate them in that. Study them in that. Get to know them. Get to pray with them. If you know someone who memorizes scripture and that's encouraging to you, imitate them in that. Get to know them. Ask them questions. If you know someone who is really hospitable, get to know them. Spend time in their home. Ask them uh, to teach you. If you know someone who is known for their generosity, study that. If you know someone who's really evangelistic or missional, learn from him or her. So don't imitate evil, do imitate good by studying scripture and then also by being around others who encourage you in these various disciplines of what is good. Let's keep going. Second sentence in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So in the previous sentence, we saw that we are to imitate good and that part of the way we do so is by imitating those who do good. So here we see the rationale because whoever does good is from God while whoever does evil has not seen God. Now we've done this, something like this before, but I want to do this again. This passage would make a bit more sense 2,000 years ago. Uh, Even 200 years ago, it would make a bit more sense than it does today. Here's why. Let's do a bit of an experiment. Raise your hand if you have the exact same job as your parent. Raise your hand if you have the exact same job as your parent. I don't see any hands whatsoever. Apparently, none of the mom's parents were moms or something like that. So at least they would probably have the same job. I was anticipating that. But most of us don't. Now, that's not the case 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago or whatever it, uh, it might be. Uh, for most of world history, if your parent, if your dad was a farmer, you were gonna be a farmer. If your dad was a carpenter, you were gonna be a carpenter. If your dad was a priest, you were a priest. If your dad was a tyrannical dictator, you were going to be a tyrannical dictator. In a sense, children take after their parents. They kind of uh, are brought up into the same vocation as their parents. And we see this theme even in Scripture. This theme that we are to imitate our father in scripture. Matthew 5, 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he, that's God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are to look like our father. We are to do the things that he does. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, children imitate their parents. So as beloved sons and daughters of our heavenly father, we should also imitate him. Here's my point, that we are to imitate good because by imitating good, we thus imitate God himself. For God is good. In fact, goodness has no meaning apart from God. Goodness is not some arbitrary virtue that, that stands above God. Goodness is something that flows from the very nature and character of God. He is the source. He is the fountain. He is the actual meaning or definition of what is good. So those who are born of God imitate God even as a child imitates his or her, her parent. And when we imitate good, we demonstrate that we are of God. That's the point that he's making here. When you imitate what is good... You imitate God and you show that you are of God. You're from God. Whereas those who do not do good, that is those who do evil in this context, show that they are not from God. Or as this text says, have not seen God. Now let me ask you this question. Why does John write here, have not seen God? Well, the Bible's really clear that no one has seen 
God, at least physically, materially. Why not? Because God isn't physical. God isn't material. God doesn't have a body. Yes, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has a body, but God himself does not have a body. He's not uh, physical. He's not material. He's not uh, uh, bodily. He is spirit. So John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. John 5.37, and the Father who sent me, that's Jesus, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. And we could go on and on with other passages that say the same thing. No one can see God, at least uh, if we mean by that literally or physically or bodily. So when John writes about some people not having seen God, he doesn't mean literally because no one's seen God literally. Instead, he means figuratively. So what's the figure of speech? Well, seeing God is a metaphor. It's a metaphorical way of talking about knowing God. Look at how these concepts are combined, in particular in uh, Johannine uh, literature or in John's theology. John 14, 7, if you you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, notice these two verbs here, know him and have seen him. To know and to see are combined there. 1 John 3, 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, in John's writings, in Johannine uh, literature, not having seen God means not knowing God. And not knowing God means not being a Christian. That's what he means here. So John's point here is simply that those who do good, that is theological, social, and moral good, know God. They're Christians. They're believers. Whereas those who don't do good do not know God. Now, there's one little clarification that's really important here. Does this mean that believers don't sin? Does this mean that if you sin, you aren't saved? The text says whoever does evil has not seen God. We've already seen how to see God means to know God. So it's saying if you do evil, you don't know God. But here's the problem. I do evil. You do evil. We do evil. Every covetous desire is evil. Every lustful thought is evil. Every lie, every curse, every bit of deception, every ounce of pride or arrogance is evil. Even after knowing and loving Christ for 19 years, I still do evil. In fact, my life is somewhat radically, pervasively affected by residual sin. So the question is not, Do you do evil, but rather, what do you do when you inevitably do evil? That's the point that John is making here. Not do you do evil, but rather, what do you do when you inevitably do evil? Because all of us do evil. Do you unrepentantly do evil? Is there humility and contrition when you do evil? We all sin, believer and unbeliever like. Sin is not what distinguishes believers and unbelievers. Repentance in light of sin is what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. So when you sin, do you run toward Christ? Do you run toward the gospel? Or do you run away? Or do you double down on your sin? Or do you attempt to hide or clean yourself up? If you still struggle with sin, welcome to the club. You're a Christian. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. But this is talking about those who would profess to know God 
but whose lives bear no fruit whatsoever. Let's keep going. Verse, uh, verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So now we'll see this letter shifts a bit from this more general theological counsel to this commendation, this recommendation. We meet this guy named Demetrius. We don't know much about Demetrius historically. He's male. He's probably not Jewish since it's a Greek name, so he's most likely a Gentile. I like to imagine he's Russian because Demetrius is kind of fun to say with a Russian accent, although he's probably not. But we do know he's a Gentile man. That's about it. Beyond that, we really don't know anything else about him because it's a pretty common Greek name. It would be like somebody writing something today and mentioning John or Mike or Karen or something like that. These are just common names here in, uh, in America. So we meet this Demetrius guy because John is commending him. And as we talked about a few weeks back, this is really important in, uh, in the context of the ancient world, in, in particular in regards to the dictates of ancient hospitality. So we've talked about this a a few times in 3 John. When you hosted someone in your home, one of the things that you were doing in that society is you were vouching for that person. You were kind of giving your stamp of approval upon them and saying, I vouch for this person. I testify to this person. You're not only offering a degree of protection from the elements, just kind of a room and board sort of situation, but instead, you're actually providing for them a sense of social standing. And so whatever social standing you have in the community, that person is now a, a sharer in that. They're, they're a co-partaker uh, with you of that social standing. So it was helpful for you to have a letter of commendation, to vouch for someone that you were vouching for. Especially given the fact that, as we've already talked about, it's not just good and faithful missionaries, good and faithful teachers who are going from town to town preaching the gospel. There are also these unfaithful missionaries, these unfaithful uh, preachers, these itinerant heretics who are going from town to town spreading not the true gospel, but instead false gospel. And so if someone just shows up at your door and says, hey, let me in. I'm a Christian teacher. I need a place to stay for a couple of days. You don't really know who that person is. You don't know if this is the next Augustine or the next Pelagius. You don't know if it's the next Athanasius or the next Arius. By the way, if you don't know who those guys were, both Augustine and Athanasius were church fathers who shaped uh, Christian orthodoxy for the better whereas Arius and Pelagius were both heretics condemned by the early church. But the point is simply that if someone shows up at your door, you don't know if they're faithful or not. So John writes this letter in effect to say, trust me, you can trust Demetrius. Most likely, Demetrius is the carrier of this letter of 3 John. And so he shows up at Gaius' doorstep holding this letter, probably was somewhat awkward while Gaius reads it, holding this letter, and then hoping that Gaius will let him in, unlike Diotrephes, who is barring the doors of his home, failing to offer hospitality, kicking people out of the church. So John, uh, 3 John is kind of like a referral letter. You ever have to write one of these for a friend or an employee or something like that? Suppose you're writing a letter of recommendation for Dan Jones, one of our deacons here. And so you type it up and you write out all of this, uh, these reasons that they should hire. And you say, there's three main reasons that you should hire uh, Dan. Because he works hard, 
He has a beard and he always wears cargo shorts, all right? Well, likewise, John is going to give these three reasons for Gaius, the recipient of the letter, to welcome Demetrius, the carrier of the letter. The first reason is because he's received a good testimony from everyone. Not literally everyone, right? Like everyone in the whole world. Obviously, Gaius can't give good testimony or else this letter wouldn't have been necessary. The idea is basically everyone who knows Demetrius can testify of his faithfulness. So that's the first reason that you should uh, go ahead and receive him into your home. It's because everyone knows of his faithfulness. The second one, he has received a good testimony from the truth itself. That's kind of a weird way of saying uh, what uh, eventually was a, an early church idiom, meaning something like he's above reproach. That's how this phrase is used in other literature. It means uh, it was used of guys who were uh, uh, being commended for church office, like an elder or deacon or something like that. So it just basically means that he is above reproach. And lastly, he's received a good testimony from us. That is John and his cohorts. And that's pretty important because apostolic important is, uh, ap- apostolic testimony is true. If you can't trust an apostle who can, you trust. So this puts Gaius in this really interesting sort of position because Diotrephes, who probably is a church leader either in Gaius' own church or in another church in the area, Diotrephes not only fails to welcome faithful brothers, but he also rejected apostolic authority. So yet again, John is telling Gaius, don't be like that Diotrephes guy. Don't reject our apostolic testimony. When I tell you that Demetrius is faithful, you should listen to me that Demetrius is faithful. And don't be like Diotrephes in refusing to give hospitality to true teachers. Instead, welcome Demetrius as a faithful brother. Now, last week, Zach got to uh, call out some modern false teachers which was kind of fun. We've done that historically. We've shown some church heretics and so forth over the years, but he got to do so in regards to some uh, modern guys who were off on the gospel, whether that is they deny these, these major doctrines like the Trinity or the deity of Christ or something like that, or that they just so significantly alter meaningful doctrines that we would say, you need to watch out for them. Not saying you can't read their stuff or listen to them, but you need to do so with a whole lot of discernment because most of what you're getting is not good. And so he got to do that uh, last week, but we didn't want to simply call out the bad guys. We also wanted to spend some time commending the good guys. The difficulty with that is that even the best teachers have blind spots, all right? So if you look at it historically, there's no one who has perfect theology except for Jesus. He's the only one. Augustine is really great on original sin and on sovereignty and on a hundred other things but he's not great on baptism. Or Luther is great on justification by faith and the priesthood of a believer and a hundred other things, but he's a little coarse at times. So what do we do when our heroes are flawed? Well, you know what our, can- our, our culture does. We just cancel them. It's kind of like modern book burning or a modern witch hunt or something like that rolled into one convenient pass, pass, uh, package. Yes, Augustine, yes, Luther, yes, Jonathan Edwards were flawed, but so was Abraham and Moses and David and Peter and Paul and Wade Catlin, one of our elders, and Jeff Ashley and Tim Hollis and Zach Lee and on and on we could go if I named every one of you as well. Besides that, in spite of all their flaws, I would still say that Calvin or Edwards was a billion times more holy than I am 
So if we really want to be consistent, we have to either cancel everyone, including ourselves, or maybe we just refuse to play that game and recognize that everyone has flaws. Everyone has blind spots. And so to appreciate someone in spite of those errors in their theology. So I'm gonna give you a list of guys that have been the most edifying, the most encouraging to me personally. I wouldn't agree with everything that all of these guys say, obviously, but by and large, they just uh, have been so overwhelmingly helpful to me in my uh, thinking. They've influenced me for the better. So I'll give you a list of historic guys and then modern guys that I love. Historically, I love Augustine, mentioned him before, Athanasius, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Spurgeon. There are a ton of others that are faithful, but these are the ones that I've most uh, read and studied. As far as modern pastors and theologians, I've been most influenced by guys like John Piper, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, Tom Schreiner, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, G.K. Beale, Alistair McGrath, and a couple of professors in seminary, Jeffrey Bingham, John Hanna. In addition to these guys, I've learned a lot from faithful guys like Herman Bovink, Andreas Kostenberger, Doug Moo, Daryl Bach, B.B. Warfield, Fred Sanders. These have all proven really helpful to me in various areas over the years. Many of these, by the way, would overlap with other staff and elders, although they would have a, a, a different list, just a slightly inferior list. But uh, let's keep going. Verses 13 and, uh, and 14. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Uh, if you're familiar, we, we saw a very similar verse at the end of 2 John. I won't read that now for the sake of time, but suffice you can say, you can go back and listen to Zach's sermon from that text as he brought out a few really helpful nuances uh, in the exact same language that I'm not bringing out here and, uh, and vice versa. And so they kind of complement uh, each other. But basically, this passage says that John has more to say than just what he writes here. If you think that we've exhausted every possible Johannine implication or nuance over the past year? We have not. That's the case for every preacher and teacher, by the way. You wouldn't believe how much information is cut from a sermon each and every week. Little bits of trivia, like a director shooting 10 hours worth of film and then having to edit down to two. So a good pastor has a wealth of information regarding the text that typically doesn't make it in. For example, typically... I probably wouldn't even mention the fact that the word uh, ink in this passage is melanos, from which we get the word melanin. That's an interesting bit of trivia, but typically it wouldn't make the sermon cutting room floor. But teaching the Bible reminds us that we're limited. We can't say everything at once. Suppose someone were to ask us, why haven't you ever preached through the book of Revelation? Well, then I would respond, we've only been going, I've been here for four years, Right? Then if I would have preached through Revelation, I wouldn't have preached through Romans. And then someone would have said, why didn't you preach through Romans? And then, well, I wouldn't have preached through 1 John. And someone would have asked that question. I think most people understand that. Most people understand the fact that we haven't addressed every single book of the Bible doesn't mean that they are irrelevant. I'd love to preach through Hebrews. I'd love to preach through 1 Corinthians, that's what we're going to do next year in 2 Corinthians. But there's 60 other books that I'd also love to preach, and you can only do one at a time. Here's why I bring that up. Because just as we can't preach every Bible, every book of the Bible simultaneously, so we can't teach on every topic simultaneously. 
And I bring this up because sometimes people are frustrated that whatever their pet theological doctrine is, isn't being brought up as quickly as they want or as explicitly as they want. And so they might have this question, or they might wonder, why haven't we taught, at least in their opinion, on whatever topic it is that they're really passionate about, whether it's poverty or injustice or politics or racism or whatever it might be. And so let me give you three thoughts related to this passage as it relates to this question. If you find yourself thinking, I wish this church would teach on fill in the blank, whatever topic that is. The first thought is, in almost every case, we actually already have addressed that topic. Maybe we've talked about it before you got here. Maybe we talked about it on a a week that you were on vacation and you just didn't listen to audio or something. Or maybe, and I think this is probably most likely the case, we addressed it just in a different way and you didn't even recognize that we were addressing it. We did so implicitly rather than explicitly. Anybody remember the movie, The Karate Kid? The original, right? Not the one with Will Smith's kid where he actually learns Kung Fu. It's not called Kung Fu Kid. All right, but the Karate Kid with Daniel and Miyagi. And how does Miyagi teach Daniel karate? Right? He makes him do all these chores, right? He has to paint the fence and sand the floor and wipe, wax on, wax off, and all of these sorts of things. And eventually, Daniel, because he's, you know, kind of, I don't want to say a word, but he, he is, uh, he complains a lot. And so he complains, he gets mad, and, uh, and so uh, as a result of that, he realizes all of a sudden, all of these chores that he were doing, this whole time he's actually learning karate. That's a good picture of discipleship. Discipleship in general and teaching in particular. Our goal is not just to, here, here's a fish, but instead to teach you how to fish. Our goal here is to teach you how to think biblically and how to think critically and how to think theologically about any particular topic so that you can then take that hermeneutic, you can then take that way of thinking and apply it to individual topics because we will never have an opportunity to talk about every single individual topic that has ever existed within the world. Our goal is to teach you how to think so that then you can apply that hermeneutic to these various uh, different topics. So that's the first thought. We've probably already addressed it implicitly. That's the case with most of the things that someone has asked, why have you never talked about it? Second, in many cases, we would say, yes, we want to talk about that more explicitly. We just haven't had an opportunity yet. For instance, this next semester in theological equipping, we're talking about a lot of things that are very important and that we're very passionate about that we've never had an opportunity to teach explicitly about before. Topics like racism and immigration and justice and injustice and environmentalism and feminism and freedom of speech and capital punishment. Why haven't we already done so? Not because they're not important, but rather because we simply haven't had time. We felt like All things being equal, it's probably more important for us to teach on the things we've already taught on, like the Trinity and the deity and uh, humanity of Christ, than it is to teach on environmentalism. That's no knock on environmentalism. That's just simply saying the Trinity and the deity and humanity of Christ is in a different category whatsoever. So that's the second thought, though. Give us time to talk about those things. And a final thought that this passage implies. John says he has more to say. But notice what he says, he'd rather say it face to face. In other words, some conversations are best done, not from afar, but rather over a cup of coffee 
or over a meal. It's astounding. We've talked about this before. It's astounding that some people think the best, the most helpful way to engage a very complicated subject is 280 characters on Twitter or a Facebook post or Instagram or something like that. Instead, if your goal is actually not to just be faith, uh, your goal is not actually to just be as creative as possible, but as helpful and edifying as possible, maybe we shouldn't choose mediums of com- uh, communication that are so rife with misunderstanding. So, oftentimes, if you email the staff with a question, some really complex question, we typically won't just write back a short little email with a, a short little response. What will we do? We'll send a, a link to a sermon or to a theological quipping that's an hour long. Or we'll recommend a book or an article or a blog or something like that. And then we'll always say, hey, if this doesn't help, let's talk. Let's talk face-to-face. Let's sit down. By the way, that, uh, that phrase translated uh, face-to-face is literally mouth-to-mouth. Let's go for the face-to-face version, though. That sounds weird. There are tons of things that I would love to talk about. There are tons of things our staff, our elders would love to talk about. All right? But there are certain things that are so complicated, so complex, so difficult that the best way to talk about them is not over text. The best way is not over email. The best way is face-to-face. All right, last verse, 3 John uh, 15. We'll end uh, here. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. So now we get to this part of the Bible that if we're honest, we typically just tend to skip over, right? So-and-so said, hi, tell everyone hi for me, got it, good, great, done. The problem with that is that all Scripture is inspired, even this, even things like genealogies, even greetings and salutations. So let's not just skip over it. Well, actually, let's skip over the first part for now, and we'll tackle the, uh, the second part, and then we'll come back, and I want to end with this benediction of peace be to you. But for now, let's look at the, uh, the latter part there. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This doesn't mean all that much to us, right? How often does someone tell you hi? Tell your, you know, tell your husband hi. Tell your wife hi or something like that. And you go, yeah, great. And then you don't ever remember, right? That tends to be how we do those things. Nevertheless, this part of the letter in our culture might not mean that much, but in first century culture, it played a very important role in the early church community as it did in regards uh, in the larger Greek uh, epistolary style of letter writing. Why is that? Because you couldn't make a phone call. You couldn't FaceTime someone. You couldn't Skype. You couldn't send an email. You couldn't really even send a letter that's going to get there in any timely sort of ma- uh, manner. Most people didn't have the means to be able to travel across the empire to see friends and family, at least all that often. So what was the primary way of keeping in touch? Letter writing. That's the primary way that you would do so. And it would take months even, uh, uh, potentially, for a letter to uh, arrive. And so uh, this letter writing is this primary way that the church would keep in touch with each other. And so John is particularly passionate about keeping up with his friends in light of this historical context. There's these false teachers and false teaching, and so he has a vested interest when he writes this letter in, uh, in talking about these things. Because the goal of preaching, the goal of teaching, the goal of the apostolic letter is not to op- oppress the reader or the hearer, but rather to lead you to freedom and joy as you resonate with truth and you respond accordingly. All right, so let's back up now. 
I talk a little bit about peace. He ends here with this benediction, peace be to you. And this is a, uh, this blessing, this benediction is a traditional Semitic or Jewish uh, salutation. But I think it's, uh, its function here means a little bit more than just this is the literary convention of the day. In, fa- in fact, I think it's particularly fitting in light of the context. Again, just for the last time, I want to mention what's happening here. False teachers are going around. They're preaching a false gospel. They're stirring up trouble. Meanwhile, this, uh, this uh, church leader in Gaius' area named Diotrephes is talking smack. He's kicking people out of the church. If Gaius receives Demetrius, this person who's recommended in this letter, if he receives him into his home, if he recognizes John's authority, this might upset Diotrephes. And, and indeed, Diotrephes might engage in some cancel culture, and as a result of that, Gaius loses influence in the church. There's a lot at stake as John writes this letter to Gaius. In other words, this is a troubled historical context. Sometimes we might imagine that the early church was a really magical place to be. You might imagine that you would love to have just walked with the the apostles and to experience what it was like in Jerusalem in the first century or something like that. The problem with that is that bubble begins to burst if you really study the history of the early church. It was a mess. We'll talk about that extensively in January as we get into 1 Corinthians. People getting drunk during communion, some dude sleeping with his stepmom, members suing each other, they're fighting over spiritual gifts, they're literally fighting over who's the best apostle. It sounds like a soap opera. We'll get into that uh, next uh, year, but that's the first reason that John ends in peace, because a divided and troubled church needs it. It reminds me of something else that John writes spoken by Jesus from the Gospel of John. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or John 16, 33, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now consider how relevant this is, this closing benediction as we close 3 John in our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John with this call for peace. Peace be to you. Consider how relevant this is right now when everything around us seems like chaos. Everything around us seems like disorder. Not only are we going through a global pandemic, but there's these growing racial tensions and protests. There's economic uncertainty and it's an election year. All of these reasons for our hearts to be really troubled because it feels like everything around us is spinning out of control. But in the midst of it all, all of the discord, all of the confusion, all the disorder, all the division, Christ offers peace. He offers wholeness. He offers shalom. So this benediction here at the end of the book isn't just a nice traditional closing like sincerely or respectfully, or whatever you have in your signature line on your email, this is a blessing, even a promise, for Christ himself has promised peace to his people. This doesn't mean that you won't suffer. You absolutely will. The prosperity gospel preachers are not right, but it means that we will overcome because we are in him and he has overcome. So right now, it seems like the mess and disorder and anarchy rules 
but in reality, Christ rules. Christ rules and reigns over all things. There is not one cell of COVID. There's not one cent of the economy. There is not one heart of a politician or judge that is out of the sovereign reach of King Jesus. It seems disordered to us, but not to him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh, was crucified for our sins, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where he will one day return and make all things new. There will be no more war. There will be no more death. There will be no more disease. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more sin. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its sufficiency and authority. I thank you for its clarity, inspiration. I thank you for the time in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is a very uh, strange contextual letter written in a time where there's various antichrists, false prophets, false teachers that have gone out into the world and there's all these issues of hospitality and, and so forth that uh, are, are difficult for us to apply to our uh, particular culture. And yet I trust that you're faithful to lead your people. And so I pray that you would help us as a people uh, to love your word and to love others and to grow in holiness and to grow in our commitment to love your word and to love each other. Pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask it all. In Christ's name, amen.